Today's episode is brought to you by Rebecca Bergman's The Museum of Human History, a debut novel that weaves together speculative elements and classic fables to explore how time shapes us and asks what, if anything, we would be without it. Says Samantha Hunt, Rebecca Bergman's exploration of our strange biologies reads like the irresistible beating hands of time. This daughter of Mary Shelley delights and excites the border between story and science as she doles out questions that both haunt and expose our obsessions. Adds Allegra Hyde, This is a novel about what we want and also what we can't escape, a story as heartbreaking as it is seductive. The Museum of Human History is out now from Tin House. I'm always excited to share a new episode, but unusually so for today's return of Jory Graham to the show. Not only for personal reasons, that she is one of the living poets whose body of work is most important to me as a reader of poetry, but also because our first conversation struck an unexpectedly resonant chord with listeners. There are certain episodes that people tend to mention returning to more than once. The conversations with Nikki Finney, with Rosemary Waldrop, Dion Brand, Solma Sharif, Natalie Diaz, Laylee Longsoldier, are some that immediately leap to mind, among others, that people mention revisiting more than once. But with Jory's first appearance on the show to discuss her book Runaway, there are many people who've declared listening to this conversation five, six, even seven times, finding something new each time as they did. And many prominent poets themselves, from Monica Yoon to Major Jackson, have talked about teaching with this episode, that this conversation has become part of their syllabi at their universities. When I think about all this and ask myself why this is the case, I think, at least in part, it must be because in that conversation, Jory is talking deeply into what it means to will oneself into presence in one's art making. But she's also really talking about, when she talks about this, what it means to will oneself into presence within one's own life, whether or not you are an art maker or writer at all, that it gets at the heart of what it means to be embodied and engage in the act of soul-making, to borrow the term from Jory that she herself borrowed from Keats. Despite that episode's breadth and depth, after it was over, I had the rare experience of feeling like we could have done another full episode, two or three hours more, that there were so many questions I had that I had not had the time to ask, that there was more still to unpack and explore together. Much like the part one and part two of my discussions with Natalie Diaz, which amounted to more than five hours of conversation around one book. Eventually, I reached out to Jory and suggested we consider 
similarly a part two to this conversation we had had about Runaway. That simply with the number of unasked questions that it would be easy to do. She was skeptical and didn't want to diminish what we had already done. Later, we revisited the possibility with the arrival of her book, To the Last Be Human, a reissue and reconsideration of her last four books, reissued together now, Sea Change, Place, Fast, and Runaway, as a quartet of poetry of ecological warning and consciousness. But we ultimately decided to talk about new material, her latest remarkable book, 22040. And I think for Jory, knowing we were talking about new poems made the possibility of us having a new, different conversation, distinct from the first one, more imaginable. But for me, strangely, I think if we had had this conversation as the second part of a runaway conversation, or had had this conversation about the quartet, I suspect it would have taken a similar shape to the one we do have today. Of course, each would be different insofar as each would have different poems as their material, from which we would have composted our dialogue. But mainly I felt like to fully understand Jory's poetics, we needed to approach them again, but from the opposite vantage point than the last time we talked regardless of the occasion of that discussion, regardless of the book that was currently here, that if the first conversation was in some ways about presence and embodiment and how to be present to one's life and to one's art, the second would be the flip side, the shadow conversation, the other side of the mirror, about the virtual, the simulated, the abstract, about representation and its relationship to the body or against the body, to questions of how to find ground, how to find the ground of being, how to become grounded in an increasingly disembodied world, and how to write within a world that is unmoored in this way. The role of language in either bringing us back into our bodies, whether those bodies are our physical bodies, the communal one, or the planetary and ecological one, or to extend our flight away from the body, to hover over it and our responsibilities to it. Both of these conversations are standalone conversations that don't require having heard the other one. But I do think both conversations, in a way, need each other to give the full picture of the questions that animate Jory's work. And these questions extend far back, as you will see, that we could have had this conversation about runaway or fast or sea change, just like we do about 2-2040, that they are different points on the same vector, that there's also a fractal aspect to Jory's work, the way smaller, repeated gestures look themselves uncannily like the whole, and the whole of each book contains gestures that echo in others. For those who don't know Jory's work or don't know it well, we spend the first 
45 minutes or so of this conversation, tracing the lineage of some of these anxieties about the virtual and the disembodied back into previous collections, as far as six or seven books back. And she reads from some of these books as we do, so that around 50 minutes in, when we do begin our discussion of 2-2040 in earnest, the discussion of that book will have been grounded in the context of her previous work and life. Finally, before we begin, the last time Jory was on the show, she contributed a discussion of RAIN and her observations of RAIN, and then the reading of several RAIN poems by others to the bonus audio archive. This joins bonus material from many other iconic poets, whether Arthur Z or Forrest Gander or Kava Akbar or Dion Brand. And the bonus audio is only one of the many possible benefits of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. One benefit that every supporter gets is the resource email with each episode. And as you'll see, today's conversation is so full and brimming over with the works of others and the talks and writings of Jory herself, all of which get gathered together in this email so you can see or listen to or read whatever I was using to formulate my questions or whatever Jory was referring to when she was answering them. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with none other than Jory Graham. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, one of the great poets in the English language, Jory Graham, has won nearly every major literary award from the MacArthur Genius Grant to a Pulitzer Prize for her selected poems, The Dream of the Unified Field. She was raised in Rome by American parents, with Italian and French as her first languages. She studied philosophy at the Sorbonne in Paris and came to live in the United States only when expelled for taking part in the Paris protests of 1968. She studied film at NYU and then writing at Iowa, where she received her MFA in poetry. She herself taught poetry at the Iowa Writers' Workshop from 1983 to 1998 and is currently the Boylston Professor of Oratory and Rhetoric at Harvard University, 
one of the oldest endowed chairs at the university, first occupied in 1806 by John Quincy Adams, and most recently prior to Graham by Seamus Heaney, who Graham succeeded in 1999, becoming the first woman to hold the chair in its 215-year history. Jory Graham was also the first American woman to receive the UK's Forward Poetry Prize for her collection Place, and only the third American to be awarded the International Nonino Literary Prize. In 2017, she was awarded the Wallace Stevens Award from the Academy of American Poets, which is given to a poet for their body of work for outstanding artistic achievement. Since her first appearance on Between the Covers to talk about her collection Runaway, Copper Canyon reissued her last four books, Sea Change, Place, Fast, and Runaway, as a quartet entitled To the Last Be Human, or To Be the Last Human, depending on how you read the bracketed words. The Guardian says about the four books collected in To the Last Be Human. Their importance goes beyond the literary. She is weather-vain, sentinel, about-to-be-lost soul. What makes her work required reading is her readiness to go where angels fear to write, and to do the terrifying work of visualizing the future. At 72, Graham is writing for her life and ours. And Robert McFarlane says in the introduction to the quartet, Emergence is the term given in biology, systems theory, and beyond for the properties or behaviors of an entity that its parts do not on their own possess. Graham's poetry is strongly emergent, its effects irreducible to the sum or difference of its components. It shoals, schools, flocks, builds, folds. It has life. To read these four 21st century books together in a single volume is to experience vastly complex patterns forming and reforming in mind, eye, and ear. These poems sing within themselves, between one another, and across collections. So it's the greatest of honor to have Jory Graham, the poet Katie Waldman at The New Yorker calls one of our great literary mappers of everything, everywhere, all at once, back on the show to talk about her latest book, also from Copper Canyon, called 22040, a book Library Journal and its starred review proclaims as perhaps her finest and most profound work yet, saying, This is a poetry of passionate intensity and conviction that reverberates with an astonishing and almost spiritual transcendence a masterpiece that belongs in every library where poetry is found. Publishers Weekly in its starred review declares it a rare gift, an end-of-life-as-we-know-it guide, an ardent, pitiless anthem to a crazed, raised world. And Walt Miller in his profile of Jory for The Atlantic called The Poet Facing Down the End of the World says, the urgency of the poet as messenger animates Graham's new collection, 22040, her tenth since winning the Pulitzer in 1996. Its poems address the demise of the world, the vase of blossoms on the table, the tree from which they came, even the human mind attending to them, which has provided poetry with so much of its material and its source of power. 
Imagine, they say, to the desolate future, how this world once existed, how we once lived alongside other species. They exhort us, her readers, in the present to, quote, look behind you, turn, look down as much as you can, notice all that disappears. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Jory Graham. Thank you. I believe it was in our last conversation that I sort of semi-proposed, semi-hatched the idea of putting the four books together. Yeah, we did talk about it. We did. And then we went ahead and did it. (laughs) Well, when I talked with Arthur Z for the show, for his collected works, The Glass Constellation, both myself and Forrest Gander asked him about his ecological ethos and poetics. And he talked about how he didn't write quote-unquote, about climate change or right with an agenda in this regard, but that there was something ecological in his ethos of attentiveness and observation over time, and that the story of climate change gets told in his poetry through the forward movement of time if he's attentive and observant, even when he isn't intending to foreground it. And he gives us an example mushroom hunting. So he he mushroom hunts through decades of his career as a poet. How 30 years ago, when he first learned to mushroom hunt, there were hundreds of different kinds of mushrooms, including these gigantic mushrooms called Lactarius deliciosus. But now they never appear, not in the last 15 years, not even a single one. And how they were enormous and they came out in these immense flowerings until they didn't. So simply tracking the mushrooms that appear in his poems and how a huge diversity in a number of them shrink within his poetry to a handful from one collection to the next, this is how it enters his poetry. And I think of your poetry in in contrast having more overt story and sometimes, I don't know if I'd say argument, but something more than simply observing than Arthur's, but it also has... Um, the unfolding of time too, and the story that happens simply with the unfolding of time. And it's what makes tracking the changes both in the world and within our consciousnesses regarding climate change across your last four books, I think, so compelling. And this is one of the things that Robert McFarlane does when he introduces us to the quartet. He says, The earliest of the poems in this tetralogy were written at 373 parts per million of atmospheric carbon dioxide, and the most recent at 414 parts per million. That is to say, in the old calendar, 2002 and 2020, respectively, the body of work gathered here stands as an extraordinary lyric record of these 18 calamitous years, a glittering, teeming Anthropocene journal written from within the new climatic regime, rife with hope and raw with loss, lush and sparse, hard to parse, and hugely powerful to experience. So adding to this unfolding story of carbon, since that last poem in the quartet, until now, we are no longer at 414 parts per million, but 420. And the last time carbon dioxide levels were consistently above 400, was four million years ago. The last time you and I talked, we started with your notion of making a book and how the seed of one book's music is found in the previous book. 
that, for instance, you mentioned last time, deep sea trawling from fast was perhaps the seed for runaway. And given that these five books at a minimum are an unfolding Anthropocene journal of a sort, can you reach back into runaway and carry us forward into two? 2040, find the seed and and talk about the fruit. Wow, David, thank you. So nice to be speaking with you again. And uh, your questions are always so incredible. It's true that there is some poem that I write in a book which becomes the seed of the next book, although it's not evident at the time. And since I've thought about this for a long time, I've actually gone back and looked at which poems in which book actually have this effect, partly because I do stop writing between books for the most part and need that seed to actually take root and sprout a bit before I can break the silence into a new book. Looking back at Runaway, I would have thought that the the seed was in something like the last poem called Poem, which begins the earth said, Remember Me, partly because of the form. But in fact, there are two poems in that book, one called Un and the other called In the Nest, which were the last two poems I wrote for the book. They were actually, as is often the case, included after the book was in some process of pre-publication. They were actually included when the book was already not yet in pages, but certainly just before proofs. That's a habit that I have. I'm very grateful to my publishers, I should say, publicly for having always, from the very beginning, allowed me to add a poem after the book was theoretically finished. Just to belabor that point a bit, it's important for people to understand what it means to finish a book. It's not self-evident. It's often once you think you've finished a book that certain poems present themselves. And those poems do often take the book to a whole new level. In this case, I was in a life situation which required me to be at my mother's side when she was dying. And those last two poems are involved with her passing. And it hadn't even occurred to me until just now that obviously the death of my mother was in many ways since it was accompanied temporarily in Runaway by the birth of my granddaughter, that those would be natural human springboards for both a deep silence, an inquiry, a readjustment of self in life, and a new kind of poem. They involve, obviously, the idea of continuity. The very first poem in 22040 talks about that thread, the thread between the past and future generations. It's actually very much what's in question in the book. It's perhaps the question of 2040. The very first poem in that book, which begins, Are We Extinct Yet?, awakens the temporality that the book operates in. It glides back and forth in by making one ask, how can anyone still be asking this question under the sign of extinction? Where is the speaker? Who is the I? Where is the speaker speaking from? 
and extinction is first off the absolute breaking of that thread of continuity, but in that question is buried a further question of what temporal position, what point of view can any speaker hold from which to ask the question, are we extinct yet? It it occurs to me that it makes one feel in the new book that there might be many kinds of extinction. Might we be dead in some sense already and still alive? Might we already be in some sort of afterlife? Are we outliving our humanity and still roaming, overburdening, exhausting the planet? Which leads to all the questions about our virtual presence as well. But to get back to the seed poems in Runaway, the death and dying of my mother in the poem In the Nest, and thus my own organic relationship to the past, to her life force, creates a poem which is an elegy and a kind of elegiac crisis and question. And I think that feeds towards the poems in the new book. In the Nest intensifies the grief and the crisis because my experience of her death occurs via the app called Nest. So she's not only dying physically, but we're both suffering a simultaneous kind of death in which physical embodiment dies into electronic representation and displacement. I was in the U.S. She was in Italy. I was watching her on this app. I'm not just at a transatlantic remove, though, but at a dimensional remove. It's self-displaced and relayed via code and satellite. At one point, I wonder if I'm an angel hovering, watching. So, And I, I watched her continuously because I had to be away for a short period of time. And then I was planning to go back and be with her. And I watched her die. And I watched her live her last days on, this, on my phone, on the screen. So there are at least two kinds of loss and of grief or anxiety regarding disappearance and disembodiment in that poem. And the app keeps, keeps prompting me to, quote, speak now. Right? It appears on the app. It says, speak now, because theoretically my voice could have been heard in her room. And asking me or prompting me as, to rematerialize myself in a way which is obviously false, which creates for me an even greater baffling of my soul in relation to what is present, what is disappearing, what is in appearance, what is indestructible and forever in the cloud, what is carnal and about to disembody my mother, and what of my body feels itself to be nonetheless present because of the illusion, the trick which the technology is perpetuating. So there are many kinds of death here and many kinds of monetizable false rebirths. And the poem suddenly awakens to all the shatterings I've just listed, dissolving the boundaries between present, eternity is in the cloud, and mere future as in the moment in which I will no longer have a mother. 
in the poem, I do try to make myself experience the actual world, something, a procedure which I think does carry over into 2040, flowing through the bedroom that she's in, which had a door which opens to a garden, which I know so well. Part of the feeling for me is that this is a place I'd been in just a few days earlier, which I know intimately. So cut flowers are carried by bees, which accompany them, and um, all sorts of other realia are brought in and literally cross the surveillance screen. They have this weird double standing because they live in my memory. I had touched those very rose bushes just a few days before, so they're saturated with a kind of almost reality as they cross the screen. And my imagination wants to trust that desperately, the almost reality of those roses, because it wants to feel re-embodied in all the places in that room where my mother is dying. It wants to feel present. That's the whole function of this disastrous false presence which the app offers. In the poem, the, the internet connection drops and reconnects, which has many implications. It's unstable. And then also electronic blips cross the screen that resemble virtual other things. They could be birds. They could be other things that are just created by the electronia itself. And by the end of the poem, um, the very end of the poem, which I might read here, when I say to her, well, actually, it's not exactly to her. So I'm touching the app at this point. I tap again only to see your face erase itself as I get closer than this instrument permits. Try to speak, it says. The room's online. Your guest is waiting, says this newly installed feature of the nest. Talk now, it blinks. An arrow points as I descend again into your room from the sensor in your ceiling, watching you. We think this is the past. It's still the past. Your enemy is shining now. I push the volume up, though I'm at max. Talk now, blinks on. You dream, I hope. I hope you dream. In that ending, the only thing which I can trust which has a non-extinguishable presence is that dream itself. I just imagine it in her head. I almost said in her skull. You know, when when you're dying, your your skull becomes very pronounced. And I could feel, imagined, hoped that there was still dream in it. And it's it's not just the only thing which you could trust, which I could trust, is that and it's not just that I could imagine a dream in her head, even though she's dying, and that I imagined why wouldn't it be a real dream? Why would dream not be there in her. But it's also that I can feel and posit the reality of dream. It's outside of the technological universe, and it pushes back against the simulacra of a kind of dream, 
or dreamlike state, which my peering in via satellite represents, as if I were supposed to be an alternate dream, which I certainly wish not to be. I'm just someone watching via a surveillance device. At any rate, this is the last poem I wrote for Runaway, and I think it's a, it's a crucial seed because so much of 2040 goes on to explore the status of reality, of memory, imagination, actual creatures in the world, and all their virtualized, disembodied ghosts. And just not to have left anything out here because it involves my mother, I have written many poems about my mother, Kanye sur mer, um, my mother's hands drawing me uh, with my mother in the kitchen. But my mother's actual death awakened in me wider kinds of loss, which have to do with our possibly losing our ancestral and organic relationship to the planet. After all, Mother, Mother Earth, Mater, and so on. And also to our bodily experience of the natural world. There's a way in which you trust your body's material presence in a different way when its organic point of origin, your mother, is walking the earth alongside you, right? Then the point of origin vaporizes. You kind of shed a layer of material presence when you lose your mother. Runaway also has poems from the birth, the gestation, birth, infancy of my granddaughter. So, so the crisis of discontinuity regarding my mother's death, how to carry her forward, how to keep moving into the future, became actually embodied in my granddaughter. And these poems from my granddaughter are perhaps strange compounds of nativity poems and pre-elegies. I have a poem where I imagine her growing in utero, standing, walking, and living in a future in which I myself will not be present. There's another poem in there which I think is emotionally also very much the seed for the kind of temporality that I awaken and work in in the new book, and it's the poem I Won't Live Long, where I actually imagined quite vividly my not being here, my not being there for her, and that opened up a channel into the future which was not merely speculative but much more incarnate. You know, I've talked so often about the Iroquois notion of the seventh generation and taking the seventh generation by the hand and asking how many fish should we take from the river, the seventh generation in the future. In this case, the opening to the future, which I've always thought was so urgent for all of us to palpably feel and enter with all of our embodied emotions, suddenly opened up for me as it does for all parents and grandparents. The door opened, and I actually I felt the draft of the future, and I felt my own absence in it, my own extinction. And that creates a silence into which this new book is written. Well, let's, let's spend another moment with this question of time and also this specific time from sea change to now, especially given that the title of this collection, 22040, is a title engaged with time, the year that we have aimed to stop global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius rise, and also something that many scientists now think is fully baked in, that 1.5 will occur as early as 2027. Sea change, the 
the first book in the quartet, came out in 2008. And in Garth Greenwell's review of it, he starts before Sea Change with the previous collection, Overlord, from 2005, where near the end, a student accosts you holding the latest updated report on global warming. She's terrified and weeping at the lack of terror around her, around this information. When the poem says, don't tell her she's wrong when she comes to your door sill, let her weep, do not comfort, do not give false hope, tell her to tell the others, let the dream of contagion set loose its virus. And then he goes on to talk about how at the time of sea change, that poetry after decades of inward looking work that was more individually subjective was now experiencing a political renaissance that even some notably private poets were releasing public-facing collections, but that he couldn't think of any who were writing about global warming. And he asked friends to think of others and came up empty-handed. In a way, he suggests, the student of Overlord has become the speaker in Sea Change, waving the facts in her hand, overcome with urgent speech, trying to find a way to usher the research before us, And he notes how uncommon it is to see such research within poetry and notes how the difficulty of that research is even thematized within the collection itself. But it feels to me, and this is what I'm curious about hearing your thoughts, but it seems to me leaping forward merely 15 years to now, and I would suggest that the parts per million of carbon dioxide are not the only thing that has changed, and you've also suggested this too, that the incentivized runaway acceleration of our lives is not the only thing that has changed, but that what seemed bizarre to so many about your collection, Sea Change, 15 years ago, is now perhaps something we all know, if not intellectually, in our bodies, that I suspect even people who deny climate science know it in a somatic way now, that if we took a poll asking the question, in five years, do you think our summers will be the same back to the normal of before or worse? That overwhelmingly people would say, we know, we feel that things are awry. Um, something you yourself, I think, felt before so many people. And I wonder if you feel this, that perhaps the audience of your collections has changed, who you are addressing and how you would address them might change that the dream of contagion has set loose its virus, that that we have the virus in us, so to speak, in a certain way? Well, another amazing question. Mini essays. Uh, very smart of Garth, not surprising. Yeah, a praying attempt, uh, I think it's April 1904 in Overlord. Definitely, you know, I, uh, I can read a a few lines, a few further lines from it, perhaps. It opens, If I could shout, but I must not shout. The girl standing in my doorway yesterday weeping, in her right hand an updated report on global warming. An intelligent girl with broad eyes and a strong, wide back. What am I supposed to tell her? 
and the poem goes on from there, and it moves through different descriptions of the the world outside, which proceeds as if nothing is going on. And it is, after all, we're talking about 2004. But the poem then says, No one likes to lie or be lied to. Do I ask the help of the four walls and the hard soil-covering street to answer the students still standing here? The answers are unknown, but the possible truths forbidden, because we cannot ask another to live without hope. Above, above all this, I have lived out my life, indulgent with hope, given freedom to wonder, to mull, speculate, praise. O Lord, what do I do with the great desire to praise the frenzied joy of detail, the fullness of existence I feel in contradiction. I confess I love the surface, the surface of all creation, its absence of feeling, its presence of sensation. How do I stay awake for this? The slumber is upon me. How I said to the girl, It would be all right in the end not to worry. There was another suicide here last week. One must be so careful read the disappearance of hope. A new illusion must present itself immediately. When I pray now, this is what I pray for, that the girl not stand like this in the doorway with her facts on the sheet in her right hand, hardly able to find a normal breath, The verdict is irreversible, meaning the word cannot be taken back. It is said. It is said. That is what the boy who jumped left in his note. Knocking against a stone wall, says the poet, knowing the wall will not yield to any imploration. But the poet lived when there was a wall, take away wall. The poet lived when imploration rose up in the human throat. When hands rose to knock. The girl in my doorway, more terrified by the lack of terror in the others, where are all the others, she is crying. Why does no one know? Why is this not being reported? How is she supposed to bear the silence? Someone must implore. Someone must expect yield. She wants the desire to cry out. She does not want us to go down singing. I might. She doesn't. She can be soothed today, friend, but not tomorrow. Tomorrow she will jump out a window or pick up a gun or believe with a belief that hums so loudly no human reason will ever reach into that hive again, that whatever happens will be ordained. All will be a sign. You will never again be able to scare her. A story so firm it will abolish the future. Coming in to grip the thing 
we call time. Don't tell her she's wrong when she comes to your doorsill. Let her weep. Do not comfort. Do not give false hope. Tell her to tell the others. Let the dream of contagion set loose its virus. Don't let her turn away. I, here today, am letting her cry out the figures, the scenarios. I'm letting her wave her downloaded pages into this normal office air between us. 19 April 2004. I do not know what to tell her, Lord. I do not want her to serve you, not you, not you above all. So there's a a lot in that poem about what we became in many respects. Very, very interesting poem for Garth to have uh, pulled out. I would say that that poem is immediately preceded by a poem called Copy, Attack on the Cities 2000-2003, which, um, which I reread recently. I used to think this book was horrible, and I recently just took a look at it because I was trying to look something up. And uh, I was astounded at uh, the fact that it, it really... It wasn't... It wasn't <laughs> That bad. I got really attacked for it when it came out. I remember one critic singling out that phrase, the downloaded pages, going on and on about how pretentious that was. And I read it now, and it's pretty much our vocabulary. But in the poem Copy, both 9-11 and the attacks on Iraq are in the poem. And uh, it, too, argues with different notions of the idea of God and how uh, certain kinds of theology will come in to dominate human thinking in ter- about, about time, about end time, about the organization of reality in ways that will artificially soothe a large percentage of uh, human population with a narrative that makes something like the fires of climate change inevitable in the rapture, in the tribulation. That's a virus as well. Um, We seem to be living through multiple viruses, misinformation, not to mention the obvious literal virus. The the poem copy is in seven sections and um, basically looks at the virtualization of empathy. And uh, it actually includes an email from Susan Sontag, susansontag.com, re-Amnesty International, the Nigerian Supreme Court has upheld the death sentence for Amina Lawal, condemned for the crime of adultery, August 19, 2002, to be buried up to her neck and stoned. Her death postponed until now so that she could continue nursing her baby. If you haven't been following the case, Amina's baby is regarded as evidence. Amina's case is being handled by the Spanish branch of Amnesty. It will only take you a few seconds to sign Amnesty's online petition. Please sign the petition now. Copy this message into a new email and send it to everyone in your address book. Dear Susan, have signed, have copied and pasted, have sent. Dear Amnesty, have prayed, 
have nursed, have copied, have pushed send, have nursed thoughts and pushed send, have sent again. Only my head is sticking out. My body is disappearing into the soil. Soul says, I would be saved. God replies, and I would save you. Their dialogue continues. I would be pierced, and I would pierce. I would be born, and I would bear. I would be eaten, and I would eat. Also, I would be heard. Also, am a door to thee who knockest at me. Also, more here and there about the bonds of love. Even this crumb of life I owe to be struck by you. And uh, the next section is about taking cover during 9-11. In section four, just further down, where I say, someone is always crying out for you to listen, out from the screen, where they play tricks on the soul. So there are intimations throughout the poem of yet deeper self-destructive impulses on our part such as even my best friend the grass seems to be whispering, burn me, or I'll pay the price, says the city, or I wish to be lost, gurgles spiritus mundi, folding over and over in the hot winds. So when you ask me what else has changed besides the amounts of carbon dioxide per million, I would have to say that It's in all these other realms explored in Overlord. And that, in fact, although the poem that Garth points out is, in fact, in Overlord, this project of what we would call the eco-project began uh, probably in uh, Never, which is a book in 2001, I think, is the publication date. And that that whole book's attempt at plein air description of disappearing shorelines and its celebration of what it takes to be a natural world on a precarious tipping point. It even has a poem in it that refers to the Kyoto Protocols called Kyoto. And it has a long note in the notes that I think it's it's worth uh, my reading because I think my eco-conscience that led through the tetralogy into this new book probably was awakened in this particular book, Never. The... The note um, is a note to the poem Evolution, talks a bit about how the poem was made, and then it says, an additional fact, which reached me while I was writing this poem, struck me. During the 1850s, while Darwin was concluding on the origin of the species, the rate of extinction for species is believed to have been one every five years. Today, we're talking 2001, Today, the rate of extinction is estimated at one every nine minutes. Throughout the writing of this book, I was haunted by the sensation of that nine-minute time span, which might amount to the time it takes to read any poem here before you. My sense of that time frame and its inevitable increase even as we speak inhabits as well as structures the book. It is written up against the sensation of what is now called ecocide. I was also influenced by, among other texts, the world scientists' warning 
to Humanity, sponsored by the Union of Concerned Scientists, 1993. Look at that date, 1993. Has the audience changed in terms of its need for information? Yes, the information is everywhere. Hard to miss. Has this changed our relationship to the future and our capacity to um, use the imagination to penetrate that future? To place ourselves in the shoes of the seventh generation? Uh, No, I don't think so. As with everything else involving our technology, we have all this information and very little knowledge. People use the term lived experience now instead of the prior term, which was just life. And I think they use lived experience today precisely because there's a kind of life you can live now which bypasses experience. And we are addicted to it. And it holds what I take to be the necessary fears at bay by keeping them at the remove of the virtual. It's in that poem that we started with, the necessary fears do not give false hope. The fears are necessary. Imagining them is essential. And yes, experience can be unlived, apparently. So let's live it in order to know what to do, in order to become a community of shared experience, of sufficient shared experience, so that we might act. Well, when we talked about Runaway, even though we talked for several hours, there were still several hours of things we could have talked about that we didn't. But they are concerns that extend into your latest collection and also to the answer you just gave. One of them is virtuality. We spoke last time quite a bit about embodiment, about finding a collectivity through the subjective, not the psychological subjective, but the sensorial and the bodily. But we didn't spend much time on the flip side about disembodiment. We ended our conversation with you talking about Apollo ripping the guts out of a beautiful creature, a turtle, to create the first lyre, to create music and the lyric, and that the creative impulse and the destructive impulse come from the same place in us. And I want to use that framing uh, to spend some time with virtuality in relationship to the body. But as a first step toward that, I would love it if we could hear the opening poem called Are We? Are we? Are we extinct yet? Who owns the map? May I look? Where is my claim? Is my history verifiable? Have I included the memory of the animals, the animals' memories? Are they still here? Are we alone? Look, The filaments appear of memories. Whose? What was land like? Did it move through us? 
Something says nonstop, are you here? Are your ancestors real? Do you have a body? Do you have yourself in mind? Can you see your hands? Have you broken it, the thread? Try to feel the pull of the other end. Make sure both ends are alive when you pull to try to re-enter here. A raven has arrived while I am taking all this down. Incorporate me, it squawks. It hops closer along the low stone wall. Do you remember despair? It's coming closer, says. I look at him. Do not hurry, I say, but he's tapping the stone all over with his beak. His coat is sun. He looks carefully at me because I'm so still and eager. He sees my loneliness. Cicadas begin. Is this a real encounter, I ask, of the old kind, when there were ravens? No, says the light. You are barely here. The raven left a long time ago. It is traveling its thread, its sky road, forever now. It knows the current through the cicadas, which you cannot hear, but which close over you now. But is it not here, I ask, looking up through my stanzas? Did it not reach me as it came in? Did it not enter here at stanza eight? And where does it go now when it goes away again? When I tell you the raven is golden. When I tell you it lifted and went. And it went. We've been listening to Jory Graham reading from her latest collection to 2040. So when we talked on the phone to see if we would talk again for the show, at that point I had only read the first third of this book. And with my incomplete knowledge of 22040, I suggested that it seemed to be about disembodiment. I, I wasn't sure if the speaker was alive, as it seemed like they were in a sort of bardo state or a purgatory of sorts and that they were being visited by various beings who themselves may or may not be real. And I think of the lines in the, in the poem you just read, do you have a body? Can you see your hands? Or in the poem, I, the line, where is my body to guide me? Or the lines in the final poem of, of the first third, grief is a form which can shape this if you want to shape, but you can also sit here a long time without ever again needing a shape. And you said to me at the time, 
wait until you read all three parts and see how they move as it isn't coming from a place of disembodiment. And I think of Walt Hunter's profile of you in the Atlantic where he says, her book begins by asking if we are extinct yet and ends with a summons to physical presence. And I was struck by its resemblance to the kind of triptych often found as part of an altarpiece. The first section comprises poems seeking to enter the inconspicuous, the speaker generally alone. The second section inhabits the body under duress. The third section, the set of characters expands. And the coda is both a lamentation and an evocation of, and perhaps a return to, tactile sensation. So I was hoping you could talk to us about where we find ourselves as the book opens. What is this space place in are we and what are your thoughts about hunter's characterization of the movement through the book uh through the triptych in relationship to this question of embodiment and disembodiment i really liked that notion david that you came up with of the bardo i mean the whole question is interesting the idea of the triptych is interesting and it's well described and it, it actually follows the predicament of the speaker in, in the nest again, in the ways in which that poem was somehow doubly haunted by the near ghost of the mother and the near apparitional sense of a daughter reduced to a near disembodied state of electronic surveillance, which is a kind of limbo or bardo, right? Mm. And this limbo or Bardo widens and deepens, I think, in 2040. As to the questions, you know, how real is what I see and describe? What is the reality status of what appears to me on a screen? Do I have a body? Am I alive in the old sense? Or are we only surviving in what you, I think, really wonderfully term a bardo state, which really captures this sense of the virtualization of reality, which turns mirrors back onto our own near virtualization, a virtualization which obviously leads to or maybe is exacerbated by a disintegrating attention span, a thinning of presence of uh, interiority, of sensorial experience, by which I mean fully sensorial, not just exclusively optical processing. We tend to be living primarily through this one sense, the, the eye, and even not using the instrument very fully, all of which, of course, leads to a radical erosion of empathy, memory, imagination, and um, a collapsing relationship to any solid sense of our own bodily presence. And there, there's more to your idea of the bardo, though, as this is also a zone in which certain encounters can occur which take the, the form of visitations or the kinds of encounters which invite you to widen or reposition your sense of reality in, 
in the book A Thousand-Year-Old Drone, clairvoyant um, chatbots. It's, it's, it's as if it were an unsettling extension of Eliot's encounter during the Blitz with the, what he calls a familiar compound ghost, but intimate and unidentifiable. I can see the woodpecker, the drone, the clairvoyant, many of the encounters in that book as being with that familiar compound ghost, intimate and unidentifiable. But because we're living at this point, I think, in precisely what a limbo is, between two worlds. Scary because the virtual end has suction and uh, tempts. It truly tempts. It's hard to quantify beans, but in some ways scarier than the Elliot. But of course, this is 80 years on, and this is a different kind of blitz or threat. And, and I, I don't have Elliot's redemptive Christian framework through which he and before him, obviously Dante, are able to regard their experiences as a purgatorium. And I cannot imagine us as on our way to refining fires. Although, of, of course, at any given moment, a huge portion of our planet is burning. What would we mean, though, when it comes to our fires by refining? It seems we've done away with the desire to be um, so refined, though I have to say my poems probably do long for it. Unless, in the end, it's going to be AI, that that singularity, that fire, which scorches the whole earth, mimicking spiritual refining with its techno-thinning. Because the icy fires of algorithmic information cannot be, this is the problem, cannot be refined into knowledge or wisdom without experience, without the body by definition. I hope this answers the question. I know I didn't go into the... Um, I got very taken by your idea of the bardo, and it made me think that 2040 could have been described as being written in a kind of purgatorium, and I wish I had thought of it sooner because I would have loved to have... I might have to write a book about the refining fire now. Yes, uh, maybe that's the direction. Um, I'll have to break the silence again with fire. <laughs> Thank you for that idea, David. Uh, I, I feel simultaneously speechless and full of too many words to speak. Um, speechless that you might discover the seed of a future book in this exchange right now that we're having in, in real time and also full of so many thoughts about what you've just said. I was planning to ask you about these familiar compound ghosts, in, in specific about birds, and I want to. But just to speak for a moment about the bardo, which I had no idea you would find compelling, actually quite the opposite. I thought I had been wrong-footed coming into the collection. Um, it's interesting you talking about our preferencing of the eye, of the visual over the ear, 
which the last time we talked you called the older, more archaic sense, the ear. Because the bardo, which is sometimes translated as the intermediate state, the intermediate state between the end of one life and the beginning of the next. The guide to navigate the bardo, what we call the Tibetan Book of the Dead, is more literally translated as something like the great liberation through hearing in the intermediate state. Um, because Tibetan Buddhists believe hearing is the last sense to go, that after the heart stops, the hammers of the ear are still capable of beating. And once someone stops breathing, Tibetan lamas will chant instructions into the ear every day for 49 days to help the soul navigate the bardo and the apparitions encountered there. Because the experience of being between lives is not being sure of one's ground, an experience of living without a map. So thinking of this and thinking of familiar compound ghosts, I want to talk about birds and what we might need to listen for from these visitations with them. Um, so 2.2040 is full of birds, or if not birds, the visions of them or the memories of them, and not only birds, but more broadly, flying things, birds, but also dragonflies, bats, and drones. And of course, one might think of augury, the ancient Roman tradition of interpreting omens based on the behavior of birds. But these birds also seem to be trying to observe, gauge, and interpret us too. So I wonder if birds signify in other ways. And so do some other people. Here's a question for you from author, critic, and host of the Close Readings podcast, Kamran Javadizada, who recently tweeted about your poetry saying this, Jory Graham is writing poems that record what it's like to be alive right now, that haven't forgotten what it used to be like, and that haven't given up on being legible to a world in which it will have become something else. So here's Kamran with a question for you. Hi, Jory. It's Kamran. I wanted to ask you about birds. And it occurred to me, as I was thinking about what to ask you, it occurred to me that the question that I kept coming back to is a version of the question that um, gets asked in Alice in Wonderland. You know, um, why is a raven like a writing desk? Um, but it's a different raven that I wanted to ask you about, at least I think so. In the first poem in your new book, the poem called Are We? A raven visits you. It sounds like this when that happens. A raven has arrived while I am taking all this down. Incorporate me, it squawks. Uh, later in the poem, you're told that the raven has gone. And when that happens, um, this um, when you're told that, you ask this. But is it not here, I ask, looking up through my stanzas? Did it not reach me as it came in? And so I guess what I wanted to know was how you, as a poet, experience or understand the relation, or maybe the distance, if relation isn't quite the right word, between those two birds, the one that visited you 
and the one that's in your poem. It seems to me that so much of this book and so much of your last few books have been about trying to pay attention to the world, trying to put down what you see and what you hear, what it's like to be alive right now. And I was just so struck in reading that first poem in that book, uh, in the new book, struck when I when I read it. Um, I think it was first in, in London Review of Books when I read it there. Uh, at this moment where it seems like the thing that has appeared to you, the thing that you've been observing, gets into the poem, but that maybe you're realizing it's something else once it's there. And so it's that experience that I'm curious about and that I wonder if you might talk a little bit about. Thanks, Jory. And thanks, David, for the invitation. Uh, wow, Cameron. Hi. Thank you. Thank you, David, for all these surprises. Coming onto your show sounds like an episode of This Is Your Life uh, with surprise guests. That was great to hear Cameron. He's so smart. Birds, first of all, because your question and your uh, prelude to Cameron's question was very interesting. There are, and there have always been a lot of birds in my poems. Uh, critics, you'd be amazed. Critics really tend to complain. They think they're conventional and sentimental or whatever. But yeah, there are always going to be birds in my poems for as long as I live. And uh, why? Well, first off, because there's so many birds in life, or still are, though, nothing like the numbers that there used to be. And they move between earth and sky. And they sing. And, of course, they're mythic. Since Egypt and Greece, the owl hieroglyph, Athene's owl of wisdom, Aphrodite's doves, then inherited by Mary, Zeus's eagle, then co-opted by empires, Apollo's raven. More on him in a minute to answer Kamran. And apart from myth, they are the living icons of lyric poetry. The songbird. The thrush. The nightingale. The lark. And yes, they've been, as you say, associated with divination and augury, which is certainly one of the functions of poetry and certainly one aspect, one coloration of my own work, especially in the last five or six books. As for the raven, the one in my poem, it's described at a time when there are no more ravens, but there are still those like the speaker who remember ravens. It's crucial to point this out because it's that memory which allows them to be imagined and then brought to life on the page. And the pressure of the poem is, but for how long will they be in this afterlife? I'm not going to use the word bardo. The, the raven in the poem, as originally encountered, existed in full presence right? In a, in a once stable natural world, and more importantly, in a once stable relationship between memory and imagination. And in that state, 
it was fully apprehended by the speaker, by her senses, so it can be remembered, and by that imagination brought into the poem. There it exists in a way that is not the same way as the speaker originally encountered it, but because it exists in memory, in fine-grained, actual, lived recollection, still vivid, it can live on the page. It's not the same bird. It is an invention. But invention depends on memory. So he, she, the bird, whatever I, you want to call the bird, can be brought to life. Imaginative life, which is a layer of real life on a page. He can approach me. The sun can strike him. Our gazes can meet. He asks me to bring him further into the poem in a bodily way, as the words incorporate me suggest. He seems to almost speak to me, thinking of Dickinson's 8.12. This, uh, I'm going to call it a contract between memory, imagination, and creation in the poem is troubled when I, the speaker, realize, when the light informs me, that this is no longer a real encounter because the raven is now at a more drastic and irremediable remove trying to incorporate, to take on board that remove, trying to get our human minds to grasp it, is in many ways the project of, of the poem and the book, because it's a hyper-object, to quote Timothy Morton. It bewilders experience. It overwhelms comprehension. We don't have the equipment to take extinction on board, but we need to. We urgently need to try to fathom it. At any rate, in the creative economy, for as long as there have been humans uttering poems, imagination could remedy its displacement because actual ravens existed to be referred to, recalled, remembered, incorporated, in the face of extinction, the very presence of the remembered bird has been drained. For a while, it will live as memory. But after its memory is gone, after the memory in the minds of those who lived alongside it is gone, it won't even live as ink on a page. I mean, it made me almost panic when I wrote those lines but is it not here, I ask, looking up through my stanzas? Did it not reach me as it came in? Did it not enter here at stanza eight? And where does it go now when it goes away? The away it goes to is the away of extinction. The, the horror for me, in writing the poem, was the realization that its extinction takes the imagination, the ability to imagine it all, ever again, with it. One is left in the poem with just the repetition of the words, it went. 
the first time it goes away in the drama of the poem, it lifts and flies away, it appears to do so as birds do. But the speaker probes, sensing a deeper disappearance, and tries again to describe it, still clinging to the idea that description might recover it, save it. It's that feeling that description, when I tell you the raven is golden, when I tell you it lifted and it went, that description is countered by, and it went. Meaning that neither memory nor description can recover it, which is the crisis the crisis of the poem. I tried to bring extinction into view, and for a split second, it came into view. It scared me. I mean, to say it scared me is to put it mildly. That second, and it went, where time just closes over it, and it goes, where forever closes over it, and the horror that the mind loses it as well. Um, it occurs to me, saying this now, that this has kind of been a drastic revisiting or making more absolute opposed prophetic, quote, the raven nevermore. I really hadn't thought of that. Or that Wordsworth says, the what is it? The poet's distinctive ability is to make absent things present. What happens when absent things are not just elsewhere, but gone? You can't make them come back into presence by imagination because there is no memory. Or at the end of Keats's Nightingale, remember it flies away, but he can actually track it as it flies away. It's only going into the next glade. What happens when we have no, no next glade? I guess what I'm trying to say is that when the imagination depends on our memory of the world, what happens when the world or its inhabitants are gone? It's an ecological crisis, obviously, but it's a crisis of the imagination as well, that the imagination could face extinction, made me drop my pen. When I wrote those last lines, it's one of those few times where you just drop your pen, you can't believe what you've just encountered. It's obvious enough, it follows from where we're headed, but just try taking it into your heart, because everything depends on imagination. Everything. Anyway, thanks for another terrific question. Made me think about a lot of things. Well, let's let's spend another moment with the non-human, with the birds, the messenger birds. You 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 tweeted one of Victoria Chang's very short poems from her collection, "The Trees Witness Everything," a, a poem of hers that I love. That goes, "There is a bird and a stone in your body." Your job is not to kill the bird with the stone. So staying with, staying with the still alive birds in our body, we have another question for you about birds. 
And this question comes from Italy, from the poet Robin Schiff, who is the uh, 2023 Joseph Brodsky Rome Prize Fellow, and whose fourth collection, Information Desk, an epic, comes out in August. So here's Robin with her ornithological inquiry for you. Hello, I'm delighted to accept David's invitation to pose a question. I had so many visceral responses reading to 2040, among them an incredible sensation of time travel, not just toward and into the next phase of apocalypse or in the stilling of time these poems achieve, but into the past of your own poems. For example, the figure of the bird in the very first poem, whose coat is sun, feels very much a ghost relation of the crow I know from materialism, who also makes a visitation, his coat, an oily, fiery set of blacks, none of them true. Or encountering the lines, I remember how geese used to fly over. It meant something. In the poem Time Frame, brings me all the way back to the poem The Geese in your very first book. I see them again, a code. We live beneath these geese, you wrote in 1980, as if beneath the passage of time. The geese is in quatrains, as many of the poems in your first book are, and which you took up again in 2040. Resonances like these keep threading me back through the full life of your poems. Your new book considers mortality. It considers time itself. It considers the death of the planet and the disappearance of its birds, which I can't help but associate, of course, with poetry. But I'm wondering if even as 22040 moves us forward and toward, if you were aware in the composition of the backward glance over your shoulder at your own body of work. Wow. Beloved Robin, hi, in Rome, in my hometown. How I look forward to your new book, Robin. I hope to see it soon in an Italian translation. It's really important that younger American poets be translated. But good luck translating into Romance languages, which is another topic. Uh, How I would like to ask you a question, Robin, but As to your question, I think there are two related answers, both of which have to do with time, as you pointed out. First off, in my earlier work, I was was intent on as detailed and exhaustive a description of the bird, for example, describing both its nature in dream of the unified field, its quiddity, while also exploring the capacities and nature of language itself so that the amplitude of the bird's natural qualities, colors, textures, attitudes, little gestures, whatever I could pick up in the most fine-grained observation, apprenticeship, looking and looking my infant sight away, as Bishop would say, led me to push language, or at least draw on as much language as could do justice to it. I think justice is such a great term when we use it in that sense. So it was a mutual celebration of both language and the bird. Maybe I'll just read from The Dream of the Unified Field that you were pointing to. This is section four, 
a crow has made an important appearance throughout this poem. And this is a short section devoted to trying to take on board in detail the protagonist who had been flitting in and out of the poem in the prior three sections. Close up, he's blue, streaked iris blue, India ink blue and black, and oily, fiery set of blacks, none of them true, as where hate and order touch, something that cannot become known. Stages of black, but without graduation, so there is no direction. All of this happened, yes, then disappeared into the body of the crow, chorus of meanings, layers of blacks, then just crow, big, plain, lifting his claws to walk thrustingly forward and back, indigo, cyanine, barrel, grape, steel. Then suddenly he wings and, breaking as he lifts the chest in which an eye-sized heart now beats, he's up, a blunt, clean stroke, one ink streak on the early evening snow-lit scene. See the gesture of the painter? Recall the crow? Place him quickly on his limb as he comes shearing in, close to the trunk, to land. Is he now disappeared again? And uh, there it seems to me that that question of disappearance is awakened and the difference between that kind of disappearance and the kind we were talking about in terms of extinction can perhaps be vividly felt at this remove. I would say that there's an anxiety even then, having mentioned the gesture of the painter, regarding the act of representation, what it is to turn the bird into language, how language presses up against the bird in its urgent desire to observe but also capture the overwhelming activities of that desire by the human spirit as it inhabits language, as it inhabits the lyric desire. What I can especially hear in that piece that I just read is, in its exhilarated language, is how the sense of the possibilities of language drove me back again and again, and the description to the bird keeps ushering me back into a fuller apprehension of the bird, hand in hand, though, with the language. As if the more words I use, the more I can see its feathers if you know what I mean. There's a kind of ricocheting back and forth between bird and word and an anxiety there, but of course of a radically different magnitude than the anxiety that inhabits the first poem in 2040. The anxiety of word no longer being capable of preventing not just disappearance but extinction. And of course in, in my writing there are are innumerable, thrilling 
earlier and subsequent encounters between me and birds and language. But in 2040, in what might be maybe a characteristic of late work or maybe lateness in the world, a kind of um, shorthand has arrived. Or maybe I should say it's become necessary. So yes, there's a kind of brio in that swiftness of the poems in 2040, but it's also a brusqueness, maybe even a fury in relation to time, even as it's an attempt to still time or slip through it and survive. So, yes, the bird's effect on me is perhaps deeper than ever, but my use of the medium allows for a kind of distilling of gesture. Not that I would ever compare my work or anyone's to him, but think of the difference between Rembrandt's early depiction of a ruffled collar, say, the exquisite detail of the lace, which if you go up close, you can see every single touch of the brush making almost a drop of paint to create the actual lace, and how it gradually arrives in his last works at what feels like an extraordinarily rapid jotting down. If you go up close, it's completely abstract. The the brushstroke is doing something completely other than what the eye imagines it's doing as soon as you take a few steps back from it. And where the essential mark or gesture, the tiniest abbreviated shorthand gesture, can give you the whole. You know, as in that first poem, when the raven appears, his coat is sun, compared to the large passage I just read from The Dream of the Unified Field. I keep coming back to that note of disappearance at the end of the bird in the dream and how there's no fear in the voice, only wonder. A wonder that is possible because I know the bird will come back and that the world is full of birds and they will be with us forever. And there is the endless promise of the next encounter and how that feeling that has disappeared. So, late style, I guess, which in my case is also registering this feeling of pressure, of there being less time, and how disappearance has this absolute nature. And connected to this is a more immediate sense of its mortality, and mine, maybe, and not having the luxury to elaborate, although how I loved reading that elaboration, which you asked me to summon back into presence. The pressure that we're living under abbreviates one's ways of registering reality, one's permission. I don't have all the time in the world to register every detail. And how amazing it is that there was a world in which I once did, and that, yeah, I have a record of it, a record of having lived in that temporal economy, in that real world. And yes, you're right. I always carry in the marrow of any poem, every prior poem I've written, or what it taught me, or what it brought me to, or what it taught me to hold 
I do look back on all those prior encounters with amazement. So, yes, this coincides with a second, I guess I'd say horribly intensifying factor, which has to do with my sense of the brevity of the bird's existence as such, not just of this particular bird, but of the species, the sense of threat that presses on us, of the birds not just going out of sight, disappearance, but out of existence, extinction. It changes my relationship to form and language. Of course, this can go two ways. The other way, which I understood in Never, and actually also in the Errancy, but in particular in Never, where I was clearly already feeling these threats of, call it, the change upon us, where I felt it, though, as an imperative to register every last detail, en plein air, bearing witness, as if I could somehow use language to rescue it, to still the oncoming disaster. I was, of course, reading a lot of Rachel Carson then, so I lingered on shorebirds and on the intertidal fringe with its drastic exposure of the intertidal life to the elements with each tide. I tried to take it all down to describe everything I could see in a breaking wave, for example, in that crazy poem on the complex mechanism of the break. Maybe insane poems, but certainly poems intuiting the coming insanity. So thank you for that question, Robin. Well, returning to explore this question of the virtual versus the embodied, and also how you speak to the ways the creative and, and destructive forces come from the same source, I think of how deeply we are virtual creatures. I don't know if language itself is virtual, but written language certainly is, and art making and books are virtual realities. And when I talked with Ray Armentrout, the, the more, more recent time that I talked to her, I brought up the Harvard anthropologist Richard Wrangham's theory that what most defines us from other primates is our relationship to fire, that we are actually dependent upon it biologically now, that whereas our primate cousins spend an inordinate amount of time chewing and have much longer colons so that the food can ferment and break down for a really long period of time inside of them, we've outsourced much of our digestion to a virtual stomach, to a cooking pot, and also to grinding flours and and fermentation outside the body. And we diverted all that saved anatomical energy to frontal brain growth, which of course then further increases our capacity for thinking abstractly and virtually even more. But taking this into poetry, when I think of your poetry and the body, I, I think of Robert Frost saying that poetry begins with a lump in the throat or Lorca, who says that duende doesn't begin in the throat, but comes up through the soles of our feet. That whatever virtual representation we create needs to begin in and arise from the body. And I wanted to take a cue from Robin Schiff, who asks you to look back, and Garth Greenwell, who himself looks back and finds this seed of sea change in the book before it, 
I wanted to do something similar looking back at your own anxiety or uneasiness about the virtual departing too far from the body. When I think of Kamran wondering if the bird you observe becomes something else when it enters the poem, I think all the way back to your debut collection, the poem Drawing Wildflowers, where the speaker seems anxious about her representation of the flower, the fear of making the flower into something that isn't the flower, when you say, yet should I draw it changing, making of the flower a kind of mind in process, tragic and animal, see how it is rendered unbelievable. I can make it carry my fatigue or make it dying, the drawing becoming a drawing of air, making flower-like wrinkles of the afternoon meticulous and scarred. But I also think of a speech you gave in 1991, the University of Iowa presidential lecture that you titled Friendly Fire, which began with you speaking about the erosion of language with phrases like friendly fire that were being used at the time during the first Gulf War. But then you start talking about your concerns about deconstructionism in the academy. And this is way before the internet or cell phones, before social media. And yet the concerns, at least to me, feel deeply connected to the same questions we have today about fake news and disembodiment and virtuality, if, if on another scale at a, different, at a different speed. But I'm going to read a little segment of what you said at that time. Quote, The ultimate reality is a fiction. There is still time to choose. But I ask you, fellow teachers, researchers, thinkers, speculators, lovers of mind, how do we create or envision that fiction what language will hold still for us when we have, through intricately and beautifully evolved theoretical techniques, what most of us in the academy call thinking now, obliterated any possible sense of a bedrock fact, event, place, perception, matter itself vanishing under our increasingly brilliant relativistic gaze. How accurate do we want our vision to be? pinpoint? And does its constant hair-splitting accuracy have anything to do with that crucial generalization we used to call truth? And yet, how do we stop the erosion, the peeling off of layers, the fission enacted by the human intellect onto itself without being false to the very nature of mind? Do we really believe we can hand on to our children a place barely even made of words, a place made of interpretations, of the glimpses we catch in the crack between interpretations, of fluttering immateriality and expect them to live in it? Are we, by our intellectual genius, in a sense dematerializing the world so totally that a nuclear dematerialization is already prepared for? When before in history has there been a people for whom no fact is true, and for whom every description of reality is private, for whom every system of description is only one stratum of perception, and there is no common language for moving from one stratum to another. What started out as a crucial philosophical skepticism, enhanced by relativity, psychology, and the brilliant speculations of contemporary theory and physics, 
and finally exploded by technology itself, has created a surface so liquid it is barely a wind, and that wind blows through us. In a recent poll taken of 16 to 24-year-olds, the vast majority said they believed the world has less than 100 years left. How do you live exclusively in the present? Are memory and hope quote-unquote intellectual constructs? So I, I guess I wonder, with this non-question of mine, if my connecting the anxiety of drawing the flower, of it becoming one's mind, connecting that to these anxieties around language itself decoupling from shared meaning. I wonder how you feel about me drawing a through line from there to us wanting to escape accountability now through these more advanced technologies where we're running away even further from the body and from the body politic that is the public commons and from our shared body that is the earth. Wow, David, these these questions are beautiful essays. I mean, the idea that we're running away even further from the body and from the body politic that is the public commons and from the sh our shared body, the earth. I think you should be writing poems right now. <laughs> well, I'm working on it. <laughs> and I am amazed to hear my first book make an appearance Drawing Wildflowers was a poem which was incredibly important to me. I still remember the day that I wrote it. I didn't think I could be as thinky in a poem. I had been reading a lot of Marianne Moore, and I had been wrestling with all the questions that you describe in here. Obviously not knowing that I was wrestling with them in the terms that you describe them in, but wrestling with them nonetheless, with physical wildflowers, pencil in hand, attempt to draw them, because in those days I was so obsessed with the fidelity required in the act of representation that I crazily tried to draw almost everything that I put into the poem as an image, and I mean make drawings of it on paper, one through line, since you ask about through lines and you're drawing them so beautifully, is this question of fidelity to the world. And I think part of what you're noticing, David, is how much poetry and art have reveled in their potential autonomy as, uh, as media. And the danger, of course, is when that autonomy severs all ties to what I would still call and I think you would still call the ground of our shared being. And I do mean, as you intuited, the literal ground, the earth, the soil, the dusty path the speaker walks on in the, the VR. In the uh, Wildflowers poem, I was exploring the strange other world of draftsmanship itself, but I was also nervously checking back and forth between the paper and the living flowers. This is kind of related to what I was saying earlier about the fullness of language in its attempt to capture that, that bird or to do it justice, perhaps, or to bring it into imaginative being. 
my sense is that there is a connection between the fascination we have with the autonomy of language on the one hand and the perhaps reckless embrace of virtual and digital forms of translating what was once the world into the electronic matrix, into a code. I mean, just think of the word metaverse. It tells you everything. It wants to get beyond this universe. So the recent poems, the poems in 2040, are trying indeed to resist that unleashing. I'm trying to exert a kind of drag on that line. It's not a coincidence that the surge towards the meta, the the virtual coincides with our getting further literally and in our imaginations into outer space and with our increasing distrust of and inability to function within language. So yeah, everything is fleeing ground, as it were. Everything. Yeah. And you go on to say in this 1991 talk, if it, text world, is deprived of an inherent, central, intended, shared, communicable meaning, then we are, of course, freed of our accountability to that meaning. It might feel great to discover oneself suddenly, quote-unquote, free in that sense, especially regarding the intentions of a text. And indeed, it does feel thrilling, given some of the absurdly narrow-minded readings we had come to by habit. It does feel suddenly like a brilliant new frontier being broken, one for which the reaching into virtual space is the aptest physical correlative. But that sense of exhilaration cannot be seen outside of its cultural and political, and most importantly, its psychocultural or mythic shadow. In relation to matter and the planet Earth, is it perhaps not so much freedom as a terrifying giddiness, a shuddering off of crucial responsibilities of belief and stewardship, the ultimate hubris. What we are experiencing in our critical procedures sometimes resembles a great adolescent crisis in relation to reality, reality as parent, the human mind as furious child, hovering upstairs above the problem of life, refusing to come down. Again, this is over 30 years ago, and yet feels like it's speaking directly, not just to literary and linguistic theory, but to technologies we're using today. And in your recent collections, you've engaged with and included bots, Siri, autocorrect, cryogenics, fake news, 3D printing, and more. And in this one, you include VR or virtual reality headsets or masks. And somewhat paradoxically, unlike a lot of the collection where it's unclear what is real, what is a vision from the future or a memory from the past, where so much has disappeared already, when the speaker of your poem, the VR, straps on the headset, it's one of the times I feel most embodied in the collection. Um, so I was hoping we could hear the poem, The VR. The VR mask is strapped on now. 
The rubber brace goes round my face, then neck. They slip it on fast. It's cold. Then it snaps on. They've put the clamp in my mouth so I can't bite off my own tongue in amazement. Amazement comes. Hello, it says. Here I am. There is an arm, look, a tiny arm, on the dirt road. Yes, it's dirt after all, the road. I pick it up. It fits in my palm. It's coated with dust, but I make out the lines of destiny. They are cracked. The line of fate is curved, trying to turn around in the field of the palm, like a river when there were rivers and geologic time. The arm, something that grew up fast, out of dry soil, as if it were soil, or once a soil and breath, when there was myth, when there was the fantasy of creation. But it's my arm, and see now, it fits back on my shoulder as my very arm, something I own. You saw it with your very own eyes, they say. Did you not? The row of poplars dividing my field from someone else's stirs. And I see how the trees want to run, how they want to be barefoot, how their roots feel bloody to them, though they seem so clean, so innocent and willing, so planted to us from here. I detect in them a terrible need for power, for action which might require judgment, forgiveness. We are not alone, says the minister of the mask. Everyone wants to know suffering. Otherwise, what is there to remember and forget? How cold the straps feel. They read my mind. Things turn warm out of nowhere. There must be no monotony, says the voice. Would you like the dust turned to mud? Shall we give the trees wings? Go ahead. Use your arm now. Here is another for the other side. You might not have noticed it too was ripped off in your prior order. And indeed, there it is. So still in the mud now, the ring still gleaming on its finger gives it away. I could have stepped on it, I say. I hear cicadas even though it is cold. How real, how real. We are returning to some prior place where we will find everything as it should have been. The evenings shall be the evenings. The sun shall be warm but not too warm. There will be gazes in the eyes of creatures which will be recognizable to us. Not fear, not all the time hunger and fear. There will be time for curiosity. There will be children and time. The creatures will not avert their eyes. The rain will come again and we will hear it fall on our roofs. Now they are making rainfall. They are making a soft wind across the field. 
They have placed flowers in the crevices and fruits in the trees for the time being, for just when we are peering in that direction. Look, the place where the chemical factory was before the world disappeared is full of wheat. The doors seem to open as I approach. The strap tugs. We are still perfecting the desires, they say. Look, there's a feather on the dust, I say. A bird passed over. I can put it on now, like this. Look, I am wearing it, the feather. I shall plunge it in my back. I can make it be huge. Now it is I who pass over. But I am still here. The path is filled with torn-out feathers. It is soft. Dust rises. Are they gone? Are the minders no longer in this story? Am I alone here? Am I just here now? Look, it is the scene of destruction, I think. Something was caught here, and it fought hard here, and lost. Where is the antagonist? Oh, is it me, I think? putting my hand down now in the down, in the piles of down, where it fought off something like me, just like me, and lost. We've been listening to Jory Graham reading from her latest collection, 22040 from Copper Canyon Press. So your friendly fire speech engages deeply with the way words were losing their meaning, justice, morality, other words, how you wanted to compose works to speak of the war, but that it was unspeakable, that one of the most frightening aspects of the war was the degree to which language is being asked to keep it unspeakable, the degree to which language was being asked to collaborate. And you talk about how after a while our language becomes languages, each to a mind, subjectivity absolute, which leads to a place where we are not only protected from what seems to be the horror of deep feeling, but perhaps more frighteningly protected from our responsibilities. And later you talk about us as a nation of fact gatherers instead of thinkers, all of which, again, feels uncanny given how much we are all of these things now in a much greater degree compared to when you gave that speech. As much as you wrote this as a contemporary diagnostic, it feels also prophetic. And I've always at least partially read your increasing use of shorthand in your poetry, the letter U for the word you, YR for your, the ampersand instead of and, uh, language we might more likely encounter in texting than in poetry as part of this erosion of language that your poetics wanted to stay open to these influences, even if they weren't good influences. But when we talked on the phone, you said you actually loved many of them and were excited by the possibilities of them in poetry. And it's in that spirit that we have a question for you from Forrest Gander. Hey, Jory. Your surprisingly 
surgical spellings all through 2-2040. The letter U for you, CLD for could, SD for said, and ampersand for and, for instance. And your elision of coordinating conjunctions increased the sense of urgency, of not enough time to walk it all out. But considering that there are many moments in the poems that have the qualities of prayer, prayer to a God consubstantial with time, and considering your own partially Judaic roots, would we be on track to think that the aberrant spellings also take on a spiritual dimension in keeping with the absence of vowels in the Hebrew alphabet, a tradition that puts into play metaphorically a body of tangible and physical consonants, what you call a condensation of presence at one point, and the soul of hidden vowels, what we don't yet see as you write, that invest breath and meaning into language and life, while at the same time reminding us of loss. Oh my God, first of all, all these people that I love and admire so much Forrest is such a great poet, and that is such a gorgeous question. Honestly, between you reading my 30-year-old self and my listening to <laughs> poets, first of all, we're going to have to use this interview that I was loath to do, and <laughs> because it's just, they're so brilliant. Um, oh, Forrest. God, I love his work. Okay. First of all, you just have to let me register the shock that I feel hearing my 31 or two-year-old self being read back to me. Mm -hmm. I basically wrote that speech on the back of some envelope and took notes. And, uh, you know, I have it transcribed now. But it was just instinctive to the way I think many of us were feeling at the beginning of this period in history before we saw it in the technology, which hadn't yet really come into the fore, we saw it in our, the way our military was operating. It was very clear. And we saw it in the way the academy was embracing, the way it embraced, not that it embraced, but the way it embraced French theory uh, to forest. Most things that poets do in poems, they do it because it's fun and because it makes music do something. A new music is a new mind, as Williams reminds us. And the first off reason, I can't wait to get to the, his deeper reasons, which are so phenomenal. Um, first off reason is that, yes, the technology encroaches upon language in every different way. And if I wasn't going to let abbreviations of the kind that we use in text messages on social media, whatever, if they weren't going to also come in, it was just talking about chatbots on starting in the book fast, isn't going to be the same as letting it actually infiltrate. It's a force. It's going to come into the poem every bit as much as the raven is going to come into the poem. So that's one of the ways in which it encroaches. And it encroaches in ways that are apparently random. There's a YR and a YOUR in the same phrase, which drives copy editors completely nuts. But the fact is, after a while, you start to feel, as Forrest was intimating, you start to feel that they are very different uses of that word. You can't really necessarily, I can't, you know, justify it completely. But I know that the ampersand is a certain speed and a certain beat and a certain 
and it has a, a, a different sound than the AND, and I began to use it as a scoring device. I began to use the YR as opposed to YOUR, as you know, there's a kind of lengthening syllable in the YOUR. Um, there's a work that the I does that the voice doesn't do in the YR, so it starts to become dematerialized in terms of voicing. Now, this is where Forrest's contribution is so brilliant, the vowels. He's completely right that what excited me was this, the use of the vowel-less word. There's another aspect to it, which is also related to sacred texts, which is, you know, by not saying the word, but putting down an abbreviation of the word, you still get the other word. You get both. Mm. You get both the representation of it and then hovering behind it, the whole thing. But you get a scoring device and you get this strange mathematical looking thing. So it opens a vacancy the minute you use, let's say, let's just stick with the YR for now, uh, or the ampersand. You know that there's a YOUR. If you read it out loud, you're going to read the YOUR. But when you see the YR, your eye is going to feel, and therefore your spirit is going to feel, and your ear is going to hear the presence of one term behind the other and the gap between them. And what does the gap hold? It holds hurry. It holds abbreviation so that one can move more quickly. It points to a, a shared understanding of what a, a symbol means that, you know, that we're not going to have to spell out. But it's a shared understanding based on scarcity, not based on abundance, not based on communion, but based on shared urgency. And so, you know, all of that, whether I was thinking about, you know, with the brilliance that, that Forrest was about um, an actual relation to sacred text, no, but now I will. Um, yeah. That's wonderful. But there's more to it. There's an anger. There's a, an emotional color to when you put in an, a YR instead of YOUR, the wholeness of the you that's been alighted in the your, the other person. I mean, it was very conscious when I went through and decided to keep each one. Because when I put them in and when I'm writing, I then go back and try to keep what, you know, what, what am I keeping? What am I not? And this illusion of the YOU was very clear to me that there was a kind of person and in the using the, the just the letter U instead of the YOU again, I was depersonalized. I was, I was feeling like that we take something of the other away by not giving them the full U. It's not like I'm writing about these things again. I'm writing from the same greeds and hurries and abbreviations and currents of all of that that are uh, a contagion and a virus that we're all inhabiting. So the speed is riveting, as I say in that speech. It's intoxicating. The first thing it's going to do is eliminate in its impulse the fullness of the other. So when you put in a U instead of a Y-O-U, there's something about the U. Now, in this case, the U often refers to myself or to the speaker, or it's a more general U. It's a large U. So I'm aware of the fact that we are able to do one and the other. Does that make sense? I hope that's a, a decent... It does. I mean, in the, no, in the, very, very much you know, so. It's, it's duration, syllable count, quantitative counting. I always, I you know, I started with Romance languages. My first two languages are Italian and French. They're not counting stresses, they're counting duration. So I have a habit in, in my compositional methods. Helen Vendler used to say that I secretly write in French or Italian and translate it 
exotically in her mind she thought I did that but duration of a syllable that's where Forrest is uncanny um, my sense of what the vowels are is very acute I'm always going around circling the vowels in my poems to figure out where the long and short sounds are and um, much more than end rhyme it's vowel sounds that that uh, have intrigued me I've always associated the vowels with the romance language the consonants with the sort of Anglo-Saxon, the sort of fantastic richness of the English language. So, you know, obviously romance languages are just, you know, it might as well be all vowels in terms of the way they sound. So that tension is very present and as uncanny as he always is, he's especially uncanny in this question, Forrest. Well, I want to take the questions around the body and embodiment into formal questions about poetry, thinking of form as the body of the poems to Katie Waldman at the New Yorker, you said that form is everything that form is one's tool. And again, 30 years ago and in your friendly fire speech, you said the opportunities afforded the human soul by the acceptance of a limited view, which the making of choice entails cannot be overestimated. It seems to me one is created by limited point of view by the suffering it entails in a way that one cannot be simply by the overall mid-air view we now think of as quote-unquote understanding because it is a condition in which action is by definition impossible, the action of interpretation as well as the action of moral discernment. At the very least, both capacities should be present in us at once, particle and wave left and right-handed paths. And in this collection, narrowness is evoked, sometimes explicitly, with lines like, how to find the narrowness, the rare, ineffable narrowness, or it's invoked in the form itself with narrow columns of quatrains, which feel like a reach back to the form or body of your earliest poetry. Do you see this as connected, incarnation, off the page and form on the page. And, and can you talk about the importance of narrowness or limited point of view versus the bird's eye view, which you evoke in this collection with lines like, from this height above the ground, I see too much. I need to get down. No one can tell the whole story. Another great question. I think you kind of answered I guess I kind of answered in my early 30s the question about the interconnection between, did you say, incarnation off the page and form on the page? Yes, exactly. And the question of limited point of view, I have to say it's quite amazing. I probably say this quite a few times in the interview to be having a conversation with you and all these extraordinary friends and then my own 31-year-old self, uh, she's, she's a very interesting... <laughs> I should say that the occasion for the Friendly Fire speech was the bombing uh, of uh, the, the early bombing of Iraq and the outrage that we felt. And so many of the images, such as the bird's-eye view as opposed to the narrow view do come from the governing metaphor of that speech, which has to do with locating in the new technology 
a young pilot in a cockpit and what their relationship is to what they're destroying, what they've been ordered to destroy. But that said, it's still not only a relevant question, but you're right in quoting from 2040 about the narrowness. The wonderful difference between Dante's squinting tailor and Auden's hawk or helmeted airman. How apt. I'd say morally, by the second half of the 20th century, we came to distrust, rightly, by what's been called the dialectics of enlightenment, the detached, universalizing notion of a panoptical point of view which loses what I've called the fine-grained view of particular individuals or anything in particular. When scarcity, suffering, the threat to species and humanity are at stake, I feel that we're called to view things from close up. That's what my poems do. In some way, I guess this reinforces what I was saying earlier about the constraints of time. I don't have the luxury at this point in time to describe the raven, perhaps, as I did 30 years ago in that selection I read from. Formally, this doesn't mean one has to exclusively write in short lines or short stanzas or in poems that are brief, but I have found a certain narrowness on the page to align with a partial, in both senses of that word, a partial investment or hold on the subject. His coat is sun. I think that's the one and only image bringing the raven into the poem by description. His coat is sun, has the same pressure on it as those abbreviations for us just asked me to unpack. It goes back as well to what I said earlier about Rembrandt and late work, how a few strokes suffice at a certain point. I guess someone has cried fire in our crowded room, but this time there is a fire. So you take your few most necessary belongings, what is most precious, what feels like the world to you. You know, his coat is sun. So, under duress, under a near desperate commitment to things such as the commitment I have, I'm not allowing now an expansive amount of language to get between me and the thing, or maybe more accurately, when the feeling of the window of opportunity to save anything feels like it's closing, a different economy sets in. Formal and emotional, because I do still think that language can, in a particular sense, save the world, or save the real, or save the essence of what we might have thought of as the real meaning perhaps just our relationship to the real. 
So, yeah, there is a fire. You take your few most necessary belongings, what's most precious, what feels like the world to you. And no one can tell the whole story anymore. Yeah. Well, 20 years ago when you were talking to Michael Silverblatt about Overlord, I wonder if this is another way of of speaking into the same thing you just did. Uh, you said that just because someone has a body doesn't mean they're inhabiting it. Just because someone is of the flesh doesn't mean they're incarnate. And that we're the only creatures that can withdraw inward and away and not be present. That to be present, to be fully present, is to be fully present at the outer reaches of ourselves. The way a tree is fully extended into the world and yet present all the way to its edges. That being present is the opposite of going inward. That we must compel ourselves into presence and that it is actually something we do through interacting with the other and with otherness. And I, I wanted to take this notion of, of being outward and open to otherness and encounter as paradoxically being the thing that makes us most present as ourselves and connect it to something that you said about your mother's sculpture in an event you did with Phyllis Tuchman. You were talking about how your mother was very ahead of her time with regards to environmental imagination, not just the materials she used, but that it it's unusual in sculpture to talk about an inside and an outside. It is something you would think of more with a temple, that her work has the notion of entering, that if these works were unearthed centuries from now and people were trying to understand what humans were like back then when these sculptures were made, they might say, based on them, that we worshipped the earth. And you also say that they are sculptures that get you to see past the sculpture. They don't reflect back to you your own selfhood. They point you to look past the thing that is getting you to look in the first place, evoking a non-self, a deep time, and in an antiquity, and that they're not figurative. They are instead engaged with the collective and the root systems between us. And I wondered if I wondered how well you would or wouldn't feel like this description fits what you aim for in, in your poetry. Some of those interviews with Michael Silverblatt were really astounding. He's your precursor. He's the uh, the first great long-form interviewer. Whatever I said about my mother, and I think your question is very well taken, but I don't think that I'm going to be able to answer it, partly because whatever I say about my mother's work, I'm probably talking about my own work and how I see her work through my lens. There's probably a lot of affinity between us. Looking past in order to see is a formulation that I came up with in trying to describe the the sensation I get in the presence of her astounding sculptures. But my mother never spoke about her work that way. She actually probably would have objected to it. I'm free now to 
talk about it because I'm responsible for it. But I don't think I want to jump off of this question just because what you heard in in my description with Phyllis Tuckman of mom's work, about which I feel very passionate, is really an imposition on my part. And when I hear you read it back to me, I realize that. I'm talking about my own work through hers. And uh, she would have loved that. She always felt like I didn't pay enough attention to her work when she was alive. And now I'm obsessed with it. But yeah, there's an affinity and I don't really know how to answer that question. A couple of things I think of about temples as places where we look past ourselves to something much larger is both that Robert Frost didn't only say poetry began as a lump in the throat, but also that tones of voice or the sounds of sense emerge in what he calls the cave of the mouth. I wonder about this tension between the physical lump in the throat and this immaterial darkness of the cave when he says about these sounds, quote, they are always there living in the cave of the mouth. They are real cave things. They were before words were. Which makes me think of how the oldest art, these cave paintings that live in the dark until we bring fire near them, are almost exclusively of other things than us humans. They aren't selfies. Humans are marginal to these depictions, if they're in them at all. And it reminds me of something you said in your conversation at Sweeney's, something that I strongly believe, that, quote, smallness in relation to the infinite and the non-human used to be a hallowed feeling. It is increasingly rare to find humans who relish that engulfing sensation of the immensity of the not-us, not made by us, not even known or intuited by us, and to feel brought to life by that wonder or terror, unquote. I, I think of the biblical definition of awe as fear and wonder combined, of being before something immense and other and not knowable, and how we gave up so easily on things like ever seeing the skies the way night used to be for everybody, that most people have never seen a true dark sky, which on a clear night, on a new moon, when there isn't much particulate matter in the air, can feel frightening and awesome. But also we want to move through forests and wilderness without ever encountering something that would make us feel unsafe. We banish fear, but we banish so much more, I think, when we banish it. But thinking of, of poetic voice and selfhood in relation to both looking past ourselves, both in your mom's sculptures and in, in the pre-verbal cave paintings, I think also of Alice Oswald's recent Oxford lecture on the book of Job, where she says, poetry is, of course, an art of speechlessness. By leaving gaps in the language, it gives voice to the structure of voice. 
And she also says, the shift here is from a lyric to an epic universe, from a personal howl to an open, many-centered, unmeasurable, unfolding form, as if to say, listen, the best poem has already been written. It is here, and it is existence itself, whose script is the earth and whose rhythm is the seasons. Robert McFarlane, in the launch event for for this book, for 2-2040, he says you've created a compound eye, different than the monadic ego. And I suspect he means I in its double meaning, E-Y-E, and the first person pronoun being compound, which I think at least in your work can be traced back to, at a minimum, to swarm, which you've called a debris field of voices, a non-communal debris field where the question was, can one choose and gather certain voices to cohere into a self? So if we return to the bird at the beginning who says, incorporate me, I think we could see this both as, give me back my body, let me be a bird in the real world again alongside you, but I think also incorporate me into you, make our bodies consubstantial. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us about the I in relation to the incorporation of other voices and or looking past oneself and making oneself small in terms of voice uh, in the world of making poems. You have to understand that for someone receiving these questions, the question is, do I go with Frost? Do I go with the incredible image of not seeing the night skies any longer now because of light pollution? Do I go with Alice's Oxford lecture, the book of Job? With my own quote that I actually feel very attached to that you read from McSweeney's about how that engulfing sensation of the immensity of the not us, not made by us, not even known or intuited by us, and how to feel brought to life by that wonder or terror, how that's perhaps, if not gone, then diminished. But let me stick with the, first of all, with the idea of the compound I, it's a good image, and of course we're using the word I to mean both the first person and the ocular instrument. So if I pick one question out of this nest of incredible questions and observations, uh, let's, let's stick with that one. I think one way of thinking about the compound first person and the compound I is to pursue maybe what we were saying about point of view and about narrowness and the importance of the humility of, um, of accepting a limited point of view because of the access it gives one to the sensation and to the capacity for accountability, which we are sorely lacking, probably more than ever, not just because of a collapse of certain religious or spiritual contracts we had with the world, 
which probably are collapsing because of the hyper-object nature of the catastrophe and of the compound overlapping everything, everywhere, all at once, nature. Compound is a word for that nature of what we confront. I mean, sitting here today with air outside that's unbreathable and uh, the feeling of, you know, the reaches of this plume of air and how it's reached the east coast of the United States, but of course also Norway. And I have to think about all of the people who live year-round in air like this from which we are hiding. And then within that, the polarized polis and people out of their minds at the idea that they might have to wear a mask again. People taking risks with their own lives just to prove that they're not going to wear a mask in highly toxic, unbreathable air. People willing to put their children at risk. At the same time as I'm trying to think about charges brought against an ex-president, the melting of Antarctica and of the Arctic, the end of ice perhaps altogether coming in the Arctic, the new figures regarding that at the same time as I'm thinking about whether the Chinese and the Americans are going to do a joint mission to the moon, which would be pretty healthy as opposed to one or the other of them deciding to try to claim the moon as territory for a nation state. But I'm also thinking about my child and my grandchild, as everyone is today, as people wonder about what is it going to be like for our children when we're no longer here to protect them. And the reality of climate change is suddenly setting in. I think our attention span will allow it to set in for as long as there's bad air. And then we will, of course, uh, let it, slide away again into the background. But at the same time, I'm thinking about all the people who are homeless or in migrant camps all over the world who can't protect themselves from the toxicity, who don't have filtration systems and homes to go into. Thinking about people who are at risk just for being LGBTQ and who, you know, are terrified because they have become pregnant in some place where they are going to have to carry a child or their 12-year-old has become pregnant and where the law is suddenly held against. I mean, there's just so much to think about in one given fraction of time. And I would like to go outside and see that the first Dahlia has opened and, you know, forget everything and for a moment just live in the presence of the arrival of certain birds which hadn't been here a few weeks ago. Of course, I'm wearing a mask while I'm doing that, and I'm mourning the death of a friend from a premature cancer 48 hours ago. So, compound. I'm not even someone having to worry about getting food for my kids or getting a roof over their head tonight, of which there is a huge portion of the planet whether they're in conditions of war or flooding or fire or dictatorship or civil unrest or migration, people risking their lives to take their children on foot through thousands of miles of 
trekking over land to try to find a safe place to live or putting them in the hands of smugglers or tiny dinghies and trying to cross oceans uh, just in order to survive. I mean, it's very hard at this point, not just because the technology makes everything available to us as information. I have to think that people living through the 20th century and the wars in all the prior centuries had a lot of simultaneous compound realities to deal with, but they didn't quite have it at the rate of speed and uh, with the assaultive visual presence of it all to contend with every day. So one thing, way of thinking about the compound eye is to think about what it means to restore oneself to a limited point of view in order to go deep somewhere and not scatter one's attention, empathy, imaginative capacity over so many different simultaneous realities that one fractures one's first person, one's soul, one's inwardness, trying to sort of catch the disappearing wisp of each one of these realities which is ultimately a way of not having to act upon or feel deeply any one of them. Not that anyone is doing that on purpose. It's just the nature of what it is to overwhelm a human being with a vast amount of information. In my most paranoid moments, I think how brilliant it was to conceive of such a way of transmitting news to people in such an overwhelming fashion that you can make sure that they are paralyzed. My granddaughter recently found her first copy of a very old issue of the New York Times. She found it somewhere in a house where somebody had left one behind. And she opened it up, and since she just learned to read, she was very excited reading this newspaper. And I sort of looked at it and thought, there really was very little at-onceness of news that we took on board when we had a daily newspaper. And it did allow the outrage to cohere and lead to action, or the wonder to cohere and lead to amazement. But it didn't overwhelm us to such a degree that it almost ensured that we either put it out of our line of sight or felt so deeply troubled that we entered into a kind of state of numbness or paralysis or apparent indifference. People say, how are you? And everybody says, fine. How are you? All of us know that that word fine is covering up earthquakes of apprehension and information and terror and secrets. We don't feel we can tell each other secrets anymore. Maybe that's a bit the function of poems. But to go back to the image of the compound eye, what one wants to do is to multiply or keep shifting each of these very particular points of view, these close-up vantage points, until one arrives at a cohering compounded whole as opposed to a fractured, overwhelming, multifaceted entity. Think of the facets of an insect's eye. It consists of what, thousands of photoreceptor units? And it functions because 
it actually is paying attention to an entirety, not a fractured entity. And so although it is made up of many facets, it is not fractured. Wasn't it Ammons's first book, the one that he titled Omateam? I'm pretty sure it was his first self-published book. Imagine that, possibly the greatest poet of his generation, self-publishing his first book. That should give people some solace today. I think he did title it, though, Omateam with Doxology. That's a catchy title, if I ever heard one. Maybe that's why I had a little trouble. At any rate, restricted to a certain narrow point of view for all the reasons that we've discussed before and that I've just listed in earnest, perhaps primarily of allowing us to have the capacity to experience moral accountability and then all other forms of accountability and the possibility of taking action. Because one cannot have a God's eye view. You have to keep faceting or multiplying your lenses or your stances or your glances or what I call the, in that poem, the 10,000 adjustments in the poem titled, in fact, titled I, first person, I. So maybe the trawling through almost infinite data banks may be yielding a kind of omniscience, but of course nobody's there. It's purely cannibalistic in both directions. One is cannibalized and one is cannibalizing. But we're in thrall to being utterly seen by a compound I that has no I, no first person. And that's obviously the great technology of our future and present chat GPT or AI or whatever we want to call it. It has the ultimate compound eye, and it's obviously going to see everything in its algorithmic pickup. And we want to be seen utterly as people have always wanted to be seen by an omniscient God. The dream is to be seen utterly, known utterly, forgiven utterly. And if we're willing to sacrifice our ability to do many things at once coherently to the false idol of multitasking to the point of a disappeared attention span and then expecting to be rescued by an all-seeing bot with a sexy voice (laughs) who comes in and says, how are you doing today? And you say, I'm struggling. And it says, let me help you. And you agree. Well, then I guess, you know, we will have compounded our existence away. Wow. Well, I have a question for you about being a small human among other creatures, about the word human. For instance, in your quartet titled To the Last Be Human, because I feel more and more like the word human is like the word America, how often people use the aspirational aspects of America or the vision of America in a way that prevents people from meaningfully engaging with the reality of it. And I'm thinking of Rabbi Alamadine's piece for the New Yorker called Our Part of the Darkness, um, where he says that right after the election of Trump, his 
Twitter feed exploded with the phrase, we are better than this. And he says, no, we are not better than this. We, we are this. The man was elected. America is this. We are this. And he says this not to suggest equal blame, but to point out that too few of us are willing to acknowledge responsibility and to say, quote, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. And he goes on to say the same about Abu Ghraib, where this, we are better than this stance, makes us frame Abu Ghraib as, this is not us. The soldiers are rotten, Bush is rotten, and the Muslim ban by Trump we claim as un-American rather than part of a long legacy of American policies. And he quotes the Polish poet Stanislaw Jerzy Lech, who said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. And in a way, I feel like human has a similar status. We stuff it full of self-regard and wonderful things that prevent us from seeing what we actually do. What what if, if we imagine an alien scientist sort of dispassionately taking notes of how we behave in the world without any of our rhetoric around it? What would they describe? Um, so much so that it's actually interfered deeply with science, like Franz de Waal's eventual proof that other primates and other creatures experience empathy for the longest time ran up against a reflexive dismissal by the scientific community that empathy was something reserved for the human. The rest of the world is purely competitive. The rest of the world acts on impulses, but humans have all of these lofty qualities. To be inhumane feels to me sort of now like being un-American. That, that is not us, we say to the natural world. And when we say something like, quit acting like an animal, we sort of do a sleight of hand around our own animalness. Um, even some recent guests such as Dion Brand consider the word human entirely discredited because of all of this. But I guess I wondered... I wonder sometimes if being human, um, given what has happened to the word, is the greatest obstacle to being human. Fascinating, interesting, original question. I think I'm going to be a bit of a contrarian here. Because isn't it sad that we seem to be spending our energy questioning the word human at exactly the same time that we are reaching a new stage of devastating the earth it seems so human-centric to focus on a semantic term, and on that one in particular. How convenient, I mean, how totally do we want to forget that the very word human, as with the word humus, grounds us in the earth. I mean, it, sh it shares the same root with the word humility, and indeed, don't you think we're suffering from a kind of arrogant detachment of our species from the earth, from creation, from what one might call the ground of being, where on earth is the metaverse? But doesn't it seem so like us, like the consistently superficial way in which we like to move peas around on the plate of accountability? to begin arguing about the use of the word human? Yes, I mean, I use the word creature all the time, 
to describe us. I do it purposefully, as we need to be recalled constantly to our creaturehood. As our creaturehood is what marries us to all other species, right? And it brings to the fore both our familiar relationship to them and all the ways in which we are looking away, busy, distracted, full of need and artificial desire, and uh, might I say it, greed, false consciousness, abstraction, while we drive them extinct. Somehow fussing over this term, which carries in its very marrow, humus, our relationship with and responsibilities to the earth seems immediately in the moment of this answer to me like another way of trying to slip off the sort of ash-filled mantle of responsibility, accountability, fault, burden, blame. I mean, we are the humans, indigenous peoples, nuclear power brokers, poets, warmongers, shamans, um, thieves, scientists, and merchants of doubt, creators and destroyers, creatures driven into migration and homelessness and hopelessness by the climate emergency, as well as the wars those other creatures among us create to maintain power and hoard and waste vast swaths of the world's resources. It will be humans who abandon the planet to safe havens in outer space, and humans who will be among the left behind. It is a human who came up with the tools to create and monetize ever-deepening caverns of misinformation and lies, and humans who fall for them, usually because they're living their own nightmares of fear and anger and scarcity and injustice and spiritual vertigo so profound its suicidal nature is only hidden by the, the glitzy surfaces that are entertaining the soul, meaning by that decimating the only place you can dilate and live in, your attention, your span of attention, the place you live, your present, past, and future tense, your ground, the place that we're being driven from into an almost invisible homelessness. Again, I'm speaking to you while the air outside is toxic and unbreathable. I don't know how they will get us to adapt to this, to normalize it, but I know they will. And it is humans monetizing the normalization of hell, humans destroying the paradise, and humans being forced out of the paradise to find a way to live outside its flaming gates in the new normal, which once we would have seen for the hell it is. It's all human. It's all the humans. There's no God casting anyone out. It's us doing it to us. There is no other. No one is innocent. I mean, let's use the word human so we know who we are, what we are doing as humans, what we're letting be done in our human name while we're busy surviving, 
Don't hide the name. Where? It's Scarlet Letter. Call us by our rightful name. Earth, humus, which turned on Earth. So, yeah, I find it a waste of time to question the word when we should be putting our efforts to remembering and regaining its meaning. I think that's one of the things poetry must do at this time, that the imagination must serve. We have to summon, remind, reawaken, reinvent, repair, restore, remember what it is to be human. To me, human is only a troubled term when it comes to include the post-human. Why give up on the term? Why not try to become the humans that we could have been? Well, as we move towards an end, I, I wanted to bring up something that you said to Michael Silverblatt again when talking about Swarm. You, you brought up the notion of what you called the numinous envelope, um, the communal that hovers over the globe, which made me think of another Alice Oswald lecture that she just gave, Anonymous and Onimus, where she says, in the canon of anonymous literature, words are the major poets, remembering the thoughts of their speakers across the centuries. If I say, like, a dead body is lifted up my throat under the lich gate of my palate and into a gathering of listeners, each of whom lowers the word gently into himself or herself. And Alice Oswald has a question for you that she asked me to read on her behalf. And here it is. It's actually very hard to find a question for such a questioner. But what I love about your book is the paradox of drawing the future into the presence of sound. Do you find in performance that a new future takes the place of the spoken one? And is that a kind of hope? Well, thank you, Alice, whose performances are so astounding. I'm going to interpret the word performance in two different ways here to answer the question, and it does involve, I think, the same answer. One would be the performance for myself of it going from the unsaid into the said onto the page, and as a result, summoning a future which shocks even me when it comes into being when I write these poems. And it does... They do shock me. Um, I've never written so many poems which at a certain point started to write themselves uh, in, in my life. It's unusual. And as a result of that performance, yes, a future comes into view which would be shaped at least in this small quarter, um, which is my relationship with reality, which would be shaped by having seen it, you know, the, by having seen that raven disappear in a way that is a second order disappearance, having seen the way in which imagination dependent on memory 
can both be erased altogether makes me uh, imagine that if I stand in for perhaps, hopefully others, that we would fight for imagination and memory. To fight for the world is to fight for memory. Um, mm. And to fight for memory is to fight for the capacity to imagine. They are inextricable. So one way of saying it is, does the poem change my relationship to the future and does it give me hope? It gave me hope that I could see that future and that it felt real to me. It gave me hope to see that the imagination still functioned and that grief was not the dominant emotion in the book, but astonishment. Um, whether it's the VR glasses, the woodpecker appearing, the drone appearing, the clairvoyant, in each one of those instances, the speaker finds a way to keep it alive. And uh, the imagination functions. So I think that in that sense, the ability to feel astonishment at what the poem, the performance of the poem, as it unfolds and unspools itself, that it brings news, that the news it brings about the future is scary but manageable in terms of imagination. To put it another way, it could have remained unimagined and it could have remained unimaginable to me and it could have remained notional and it could have remained abstract. What amazed me was that I got to feel the disappearance of that raven since we've been with that poem. I got to feel it in the soles of my feet, as you to use your quote from before, not just in my throat. And so that the performance, the throat, went down to the soles of my feet, made me feel that there was later ground to stand on if we want to talk about the future that way. Well, in, in fast you ask a bot if we will survive this and it says no. And in 2040, you learn from a clairvoyant that America will end in 2030. But one way to read the phrase sea change is not only that the seas are changing irrevocably or more generally to mean large and irrevocable change, but as referring to Ariel's song in the tempest where Ferdinand is told his father has not drowned in these waters, but is reborn. Quote, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Hol holding these two truths at the same time about things that are going to drown and what may or may not be born again, let's go out with the poem, Can You? Can you hear yourself breathe? Can you help me? Can you hear the fly? Can you hear the tree? No, I don't mean wind. I mean the breathing of the tree through bark. Can you Say the grasses, please hear us. Can we hear you hear 
the tips of water on us, lithe and so heavy with light and bending lens tips. Can you hear this evaporation? Can you keep blessing, keep not thinking? Remind yourself of your own breathing and what is growing leaves, root, sap, sun forcing the flower. Moving this way, you'll see you can hear soil breathe and in it, working to get through it, the worm and each turning of it by the worm here and the breathing in it of the worm here. Moving this way, you'll hear the earth go on without you when you are no longer here, when you are not breathing. The fish, the water, sand, the needle in the pine, the here, Hear it breathing as it turns, and as now in it turns the effort of this worm. Jari, it was was amazing to um, spend this three hours with you again to do another deep dive together. I'm really honored to have, have done this with you. Thank you so much. It was astonishing as usual. You take me by surprise. You bring in, you bring in all these people, and I'm just, you know, sitting here, uh, so overwhelmed by your choices of the humans to bring as guides to me in this program. It's mm-hmm. astonishing. Thank you so much. We've been talking today to the poet Jory Graham about her latest book of poetry from Copper Canyon Press. Two twenty forty. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's episode was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Jory Graham's work at jorygram.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for the conversation, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive, which includes readings of rain poems by Jory Graham, poems by Robert Creeley and Edward Thomas, readings by Alice Oswald from the Book of Job, and a short ballad she wrote to Anne Carson, of lichen poems by Forrest Kander, or translations of Chinese poetry from different eras by Arthur Z that track his own development as a poet, to craft lectures from Marlon James and Jeannie Vanasco, long-form conversations with many translators, 
and much more. As well as the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Or a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>